This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 17. Episode 3. This is Writing Excuses, Chekhov's surprising yet inevitable inverted gun. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Howard. I'm Kayla. I'm Sandra. And I'm Meg. And this episode is about creating the thread which makes surprise inevitable. The title of the episode is is an acknowledgement of the fact that most people use Chekhov's gun backwards. Chekhov was saying, if there's a gun on the mantle in Act 1, it must be fired in Act 3. I suspect that Chekhov, who was a, play, who was a playwright, was basically conserving budget for the props master. It's like, no, we're not going to spend any money putting a gun on the mantle unless the script calls for a gun to be fired in Act 3. The way we use Chekhov's gun is the inversion. Um, if a gun must be fired in Act 3, it has to be on the mantle in Act 1. And we want it to be surprising yet inevitable. That gun on the mantle makes a promise, but the only promise is that the gun matters. Maybe it's a distraction, maybe it's not loaded, maybe it'll misfire, maybe it'll get used as a club, maybe it's in front of a secret safe on the wall. What do we do as writers to put a gun on the mantle in order to correctly foreshadow, in order to correctly make a promise of something really cool that's going to happen later in the book. This is one of the places where, this is like where the rubber hits the road. This is where you have to look at the expectations you're setting up with this, the very structure you've picked and the genre that you've picked and the audience that you're aiming for and the medium that you have chosen. All of those things play into the decision on how do I put a gun on the mantle? Um, because the answer is very different for an animated show versus a cozy mystery novel versus a picture book, you know, um, to, to hail back to the example of picture book uh, monster at the end of this book, uh, which we talked about a couple episodes ago. Um, you have Grover and you have the title, the title right there. That's the thing on the mantle. The title promises you at the end of this book, there will be a monster and that has to be delivered upon. And, and that is the perfect way to deliver the promise for a picture book because your audience is three to five and you really just have to put it right there in front of them and say, Hey, look, I've promised you this. And then we're all going to spend the whole book talking about it. Whereas um, a much more subtle uh, thing, for example, uh, Dan's I Am Not a Serial Killer series um, had a huge telegraphing problem because in I Am Not a Serial Killer, the first book, he has supernatural elements that don't really come into play in the story until a third or halfway through the book. And so uh, he had to figure out how to hang supernatural elements on the mantle right there at the front of the book so that when they showed up later, no one felt betrayed about it. 
there were there were places where the bookstores had shelved it with thrillers. Yeah. Instead of with something that's, you know, it's in context, oh, this is probably supernatural as well. And yeah, there there were uh, there were folks disappointed at that. What are some other good examples of of foreshadowing? Kayla and then Meg. Uh so I love nightbooks. Nightbooks for this is does such a good job. Like there's an amazing twist. Uh I'm spoilers. I'm I'm warning you there's about to be spoilers. Plug your ears if you really invested. But Nightbooks, um, they have this whole tension and it's weaved into tension and satisfaction in the story overall. That's what all of this is about, satisfaction. Um, but the you find out, you find these bits and pieces, these clues about the last girl who tried to escape this witch's house um, or apartment is in this case. And the boy is piecing it together and he finds that she had a plan and she he finds what her plan was and then he doesn't find any more information about it. And so he's like, oh, she must have escaped. Um, and there's like all these little unicorn emblems about it, right? And my favorite part is realizing that, you know, it seems like a logical conclusion. She must have escaped if she didn't write more. But when he runs away, when he does the plan, he runs out and he sees a wild unicorn when he thought what he thought was the exit, a wild unicorn. And he's like, oh my goodness. And then he finds out the witch who has captured him was the girl. And that she took the place of the old witch. And you're like, oh my goodness. And it does, it's surprising, yet it completely made sense, like with the way they had framed things. And you're like, oh my goodness, that was satisfying payoff without feeling like you had tricked me. I had you it was totally a possibility. I just hadn't considered it because of the way it was framed by the characters. Very logical reasoning where they're like, oh, it must be that she escaped. And you're like, oh yeah, that, I buy that. That that makes sense to me. Yep. Meg. Uh, one of my favorite examples is the comedy film Hot Fuzz, mm. uh, because I think it has the greatest number of setups and payoffs in any movie that I've ever it seen. Is so tight. Yeah. Pretty much any line of dialogue or any prop that you see in the first half plays into uh, the big final fight of um, of the movie. And it's about this big cop from London with all of these skills who has to move to a tiny town where really no crime ever happens. Um, and it's, it's this fish out of water story and just the, the writing and the editing of the film itself, like how the shots are used and cut together is so fresh and intriguing that it's one of my all time favorites. It, it is a, it is a masterpiece. Um, my own high bar <clears throat> for, for foreshadowing is the uh, BBC America uh, 2016 Dirk Gently. Um, in the first episode, we get, we, we, we get touchstones for, you know, there's a missing girl, there's a dog wandering around, there was a terrible murder in this apartment. And in fact, we open on this murder scene that just doesn't make sense. And then a kitten walks across and traces little red footprints um, in the carpet. And then a hand reaches down and scoops up the kitten. And, uh, and for the first half of the episode, we cut and intercut and nothing connects except Dirk Gently keeps saying, you know, I'm a holistic detective. I function on this way in which everything is connected. At the end of that episode, 
Dirk gently unzips his bag and pulls out the kitten, and we see in the bag a gorilla mask that we saw on a monitor, and we realize, oh, wait, oh, wait, what's going on? And then we roll credits on episode one, and we head into episode two, and it it does this so well. I've watched it numerous times, and it's like, yeah, it's like hot fuzz. There is nothing wasted. Everything that is thrown down shows up later and is connected to other things. And for me, it functions kind of like a masterclass because I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to foreshadow by writing things that where every word matters and every word is is telegraphing or foreshadowing something that is coming. Kayla. Yes, and I, I would agree with that. And I think that one of the keys to getting this done is looking at your story holistically. Uh, which, of course, the time for that is really revisions. I know I've mentioned it already, but it's because it's so important. Mm-hmm. Like revisions is the time where you you are tracing threads throughout your story and making sure that they're evident, that they're there, and that they have their payoff. And if they're not there, how do you add them there? How do you build to this pinnacle moment where it feels satisfying? Because if you don't have it running consistently through, it isn't satisfying. It's just like, oh, okay. Yep. Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> yep. Meg. Uh, I have a YouTube video to recommend um, from a YouTuber called Folding Ideas. And he did, uh, back in 2016, he did a half hour dive into the film editing of the 2016 Suicide Squad film, talking about how their visuals um, didn't set up what the story was actually trying to tell. And there's one very specific instance that he brings up. There's one of the characters who has a pink unicorn stuffed animal. And that's just something he has. And in his uh, opening title card, we learned about this character. He has a thing for unicorns. And then later on, you see him get, you know, this is maybe 20, 30 minutes into the movie. You see him get thrown down in a scene and the unicorn falls out of his jacket and he picks it up and he puts it back in his jacket. And then in the final fight, there's a moment where I think someone throws a knife at him and he catches it right in the chest, but then he reaches and he pulls the knife out of his jacket and it's in a wad of cash. And the unicorn never shows up again. And uh, so they did a setup for it. They did a reminder with it. And then the unicorn vanished for the rest of the movie. Um, so Was the cash supposed to be like stuffed in the unicorn and the stuffing came out? And no, we have no way to know that. Yeah, it's, it's just a big <gasps> stack of dollar bills in the exact place where he tucked the unicorn in his jacket. And this was a film that underwent a lot of reshoots and a lot of re-editing. So it's possible it was a through line that either ended up on the cutting room floor or maybe the cash was supposed to be a joke. It's just, it's not quite clear. Um, And so this is an example of something that would be done in revisions where you have your alpha, your beta reader being like, what, what happened to the unicorn? You can be like, oh, right, right. Because, you know, in your thousands of words and your hundreds of pages, you may not remember everything you've already put in your story. Yeah. Right. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off 
my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Uh, let's pause for the book of the week. Um, I've got this one. It is Deadbeat by Jim Butcher. And this is the seventh of the uh, um, Dresden Files novels. Uh, it's, it is a novel that puts necromancy out in front. And the title is... The, the title is like a three is three layers of pun and I won't explain it. Um, but uh, the promise of necromancy as a power in which, you know, the older something is, the harder it is to bring back, but the more powerful it is when it arrives, the way these things are foreshadowed delivers a final sequence that is, just so delightful. So very, very delightful. Deadbeat by Jim Butcher. I don't think you need to read the other six Dresden file novels in order to pick, pick this one up and enjoy it. Um, so you should pick it up and enjoy it. <laughs> let's, let's dive back in now. What are some, what are some tools for us for uh, foreshadowing well, for correctly creating the thread that makes the surprise inevitable well, how I, do we create that inevitability i uh i think that one of the best tools that a, a a writer can use is critical analysis of the media that you consume and and look at the ways that the show you're watching or the book you're reading how it fails if you are frustrated by the big reveal then dig into why that is and kayla and i were having a, a little conversation about frozen and I want her to tell us. Oh, oh, oh! Let's talk frozen. about Frozen. Yep. Frozen. Yes. <laughs> okay. So Frozen. What? A, now Frozen does a lot of good things. So I'm not ragging on the movie here. Um, but my least favorite part of it, and yet also my favorite part to laugh at, is the Hans twist subplot where he um, is like, "Oh, Anna, if only someone loved you," and then tries to kill her and take over her country all of a sudden. Now, the reason that gave me whiplash, other than the fact that I had at the beginning when I was going to watch the movie, joked, huh, what if he was the bad guy? Because I, I always joke about what things that would be bad twists. <laughs> and I was <laughs> right about my joke bad twist. <laughs> um, now, one of the things that, like, this is not a necessarily a bad idea. It could have leaned into the themes really well. It could have been a satisfying through line, except that it was almost intentionally deceptive. Um, which does not create a satisfying, a surprising yet inevitable. It is I cheated, haha, <laughs> in in a story structure. Uh, so I think the big moment that I can pin it down to in that movie is when after Hans and Anna meet, and she walks away, and he looks after her. It's just the audience watching Hans, Hans by himself in the water. He has no reason to be deceptive. He has no reason to be trying to put on a face, and he goes. 
<sighs> all dreamily and smiles after her. And we you know we're supposed to believe that that means she's the perfect person for me to murder later. Ah, you know, and it's not at all tonally consistent. It doesn't match. Um, and all the things later, um, yeah, Megan, yeah. <laughs> oh, I was, I was just going to a hundred percent agree with you on that, that not only that, but there's a music cue that also mm-hmm. indicates this moment is romantic mm-hmm. because in books we can be in our characters' heads, but in movies, it's the lighting, music, and sound design that indicate what our character is thinking. Uh, beyond just what the actor's doing with their face. And every single element of that scene is stacking up to tell us that this is a romantic man with good intentions. Yeah, he's a gooey boy. You know, like it like it shows that evidence. And then everything, now everything in the middle of Frozen could be interpreted that he could be secretly, you know, plotting things. But his whole setup, there is no evidence to give us oh. any belief that he is a plotter. And so, um, and so categorization of this, you, you know, the apologist might argue that what's been done here is like a red herring. But what I'm getting from you and what I personally believe is that it wasn't a red herring. This was the animators. This was the studio deciding that we need to help Hans keep his secret mm-hmm. by lying to the audience and yeah. that is not how you make a surprise inevitable. That is how you make a surprise annoying. Yes, because <laughs> you feel cheated. Yeah, yep. Meg. Um, and we have very intelligent audiences as well, that especially if you have someone who uh, really likes to consume everything in their genre, it can be very hard to hide your gun on the mantle. Uh, I went to a theater production of Hunchback of Notre Dame at the Hale Center Theater Orem with my family uh, a while ago. And there's a bit where Quasimodo is showing Esmeralda around the bell tower. And this is a small, this is a small theater with a circular stage with people sitting around it. And there's not a lot of space for sets. And there's a point where he points up into the rafters and was like, and that's where I keep the hot lead where I repair the bells. And I just lean over to my sister and I'm like, so that's that's Chekhov's cauldron of hot lead, right? And <laughs> we had a little bit of a giggle in the theater waiting for it to come back in act two. Yeah, but it, the interesting thing is like, I think that people try to subvert, like you, you've seen people try to subvert expectations because they know that these tricks are, in quotation marks, tricks of the trade. Um, but in fact, that can create, you can use them to create good anticipation instead. Like when you're like, that's where I keep the hot lead. And I'm like, oh, I hope the bad guy gets melted with lead. You know, like <laughs> it actually makes you invested if you're doing it right. Where you're like, hey, I'm not telegraphing the fact that, oh, maybe it almost fell on the guy this one time before it officially becomes a thing. But that it, it, it can be, you can use it for tension. You can use it for anticipation. If and that's you're why looking I, at that's right. why I describe the possibility that the gun on the wall has a safe behind it, mm-hmm. so that you know we have this this inevitable moment. Somebody goes to lift the gun off the mantelpiece, but instead of lifting it, they pull down on it, and the panel slides to one side, and they open a safe. And I I think one thing. We want surprising and inevitable, but if you can only hit one, hit inevitable rather than surprising. Yeah. Um, Because that is going to deliver a more satisfying experience for your reader, even if they guessed the surprise. And we'll talk, we'll talk about, we'll talk about, uh, you know, red herrings in our next episode. Um, Predictability is better than 
abject disappointment. <laughs> right. To my mind. <laughs> I could be wrong. <laughs> All right. I could be wrong. Um, we've got... Uh, it's time for homework. I just love talking about this stuff, and we could just keep going, but we're almost 20 minutes in again. Um, homework. And I think this is... Uh, Megan. Meg? I got this. In your current work in progress, pin down a person, a place, or a thing you threw in for flavor at the beginning of your story, but didn't plan to use again. Write a scene for them to come back in the final act of your story in an unexpected way. Yes, satisfaction. I love it. I love it. This has been Writing Excuses. You are out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production. Your hosts for this episode were Howard Taylor, Kayla Rivera, Sandra Taylor, and Megan Lloyd. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr. and mastered by Alex Jackson. The liner notes and transcripts for this episode are available at writingexcuses.com. To learn more about us, visit patreon.com slash writingexcuses. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.